Um, so I'd say that JLI is the evidence and research network on religion and development um, that's not replicated anywhere else. Um, we have a incredibly large member network um, that has been able to bridge between academia and practice in the way that, again, no other organization can and has in religion and development. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Okay, good day everybody. This is another episode of the special series about uh, JLI and I'm really delighted with uh, today's guest um, and her name is Olivia and she will introduce herself. Olivia, please go ahead. Thank you very much, Maurice. Yes, my name is Olivia Wilkinson. I'm Director of Research at the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Local Communities. Um, I've been Director of Research since uh, the very beginning of 2018 so this is you know my sixth year mm-hmm. um and um the existence of JLI is very much you know in line with everything that I've been working on uh, in my career up until this point so um I grew up in the UK I now live in the US however um and early on in my studies I was interested in religious studies that's what I did my undergraduate in in theology and religious studies um I quickly identified that I wasn't a theologian Mm -hmm. but I was interested in the religious studies side of things um and I did I didn't really know where to go with that though um and so I thought about a when I was thinking about a career I did some I did some voluntary work for like a gap year and then I did um a master's in humanitarian action and so I kind of left the religion stuff behind for a while I thought I was gonna go into humanitarian world more completely mm-hmm. um but when I was doing that master's degree, I had this niggling sense in the back of my mind that um, religion was this huge gap. Like a lot of the um, social aspects to humanitarian response they were, that were being discussed during this master's degree seemed like they should be um, considering religion and that wasn't being considered. Um, and so this was um, like 2010. Um, and there had been a bit of work in religion and development by then. It wasn't an empty field. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of religion and humanitarianism, you know, that disaster response side of things, it was uh, much more sparse. There really wasn't, there was very, very little. But there were a few people working on it. And around that time, there's some publications in like 2011, 2012, where there starts to be a bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. And so then going into, I, you know, I started working as a researcher in a, um, 
uh, on humanitarian action. Again, it wasn't as uh, focused on religion, but I started to put together a PhD proposal that brought all these areas of study together. So religious studies and the humanitarian and development side of things. And that came together in a PhD um, at Trinity College Dublin that very specifically was on um, religion and humanitarian mm. response. So what I looked at was the response to Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. The mm -hmm. typhoon happened November 2013. Um, and my question was, how does a secular viewpoint affect the religious engagement of international NGOs in their humanitarian response in contexts that are highly religious, um, with the hypothesis that there would be a, a gap and potentially issues um, of misunderstanding, misalignment, you know, uh, problems created by these different secular and religious worldviews um, and how they met in this moment of crisis in a humanitarian response and how unusual it is really to have an environment in which you have you know these organizations from completely different cultures all of a sudden coming into a place and creating their own kind of mini cultures around mm -hmm. what's the standards of the humanitarian system, what's acceptable, what's not, how things should operate. Um, and of course, you know, um, this was a PhD. I spent time um, in the Philippines um, and um, did a lot of um, uh, interviews, focus groups. Um, you know, it was a, a really transformative experience mm. in my life. Um, and the results of the PhD are something that still inform all of my thinking. So now I guess I finished the PhD like eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, I still come back to some of the ideas within it that um, essentially that there was this uh, misperception amongst the secular INGOs that they... Um, well, somewhat knew better a lot of the time, mm -hmm. um, but that they had, there was this dominance that they could create um, what I came to call like a secular public sphere. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the academic terminology just to say they created a space, like a mm -hmm. little environment amongst all the INGOs working together that was um, predominantly secular. And although they weren't, you know, and anti-religion they weren't you know I mean they've rarely talked about religion at all but that meant that there was a uh, misunderstanding of people's lives like their lived religion the day-to-day -day existence of people living in that place was deeply intertwined with their religious beliefs and religious practices more than anything it's religious practice that demonstrates itself in it in people's day-to-day -day life mm. um and there was just a, a, a kind of ignorance amongst many of the INGOs. But of course, it didn't mean that religious engagement wasn't happening all the time. And I think that's something that I do come back to again and again. Like religious engagement sometimes has been, you know, people have said that it has been a, there's not been enough religious engagement. We need more religious engagement. And I don't think it's a quantity issue. 
I think religious engagement happens all the time. We don't need more. We don't need more or less in either direction. It just is. What's the issue is a quality issue. Um, and so there were so many stories that, you know, I learned about from these INGOs of examples in which they, um, you know, right from the, the very small example. So, um, you know, I'd start an interview and someone would say, well, we don't think about religion. We are a secular NGO. We are impartial and neutral, and therefore we can't engage with religion. Yeah. Um, which is a lot of assumptions about what religion is and is not. If you say we can't engage because we are impartial and neutral, of course, <laughs> you know, religion can be impartial and it can be partial. It's mm. just got a range of different expressions and experiences. Um, but anyway, so they would say something like, oh, we can't engage with it. I don't have anything to tell you in this interview. And then within two seconds, they would say, oh, yes, but there was that one time that I used petty cash to fund a ceremony when we opened a new wing of this building. Or there was another, you know, someone said, oh, yeah, we, well, we um, we always sacrifice a chicken when we when we um, open um when we um have new shelters available mm -hmm. to people for example and i said well so that is a very concrete example of how you are doing religion even if you have thought that you are not um because it is about this ritual and practice but it led to like there are bigger examples so those are small things you know that the difference, I don't know how much of a difference it makes or doesn't make, but sometimes it could be catastrophic to a response. So there was one example where an INGO had not understood, not done any consultation or any kind of lessons learned to understand that um, in a particular part of an island, there had been a big move from, of people from Catholic population to evangelical churches. And that was causing a lot of tension in the island. And I mean, we see this in like demographics about religion, like move to um, evangelical churches and that there's not necessarily people moving away from religion, it's moving to other forms of religion. Um, and they had create they'd done a shelter project. And basically um, the long and short of it is that they'd essentially created shelters for the Catholic population and all the people in the evangelical churches were shut out of that opportunity um, because of divides within the community and how they'd done their, how they targeted beneficiaries and who they'd spoken to. Um, and so they created like a um, denominational divide and they had no idea about it. Um, and so that's like, a, that's where you are doing accidental social engineering through your ignorance of the context and the, um, the religious dynamics in that context. So um, obviously it's hugely important to take that into account. Um, I'm being quite long-winded to this response, but um, you could get me started on this topic and I could speak for an hour without any questions, so. Um, no, I, I find it interesting, Olivia, because you know I'm an anthropologist, so I'm fascinated always by these stories and the fact that, you know, the identification of subcultures and how, and a lot of people are very often not aware, so it's really um, insightful. So, so yeah, go, go ahead. I, I do 
have a question in terms of, of the, because you were referring to the INGOs that were working there, so the international NGOs, the international non-governmental organizations. Um, so, but many of them are also faith-based, right? So did you come across them as well? And how, yeah, how, how did they relate into um, what you were observing? Mm -hmm. Right, so there's a range of types of FBOs. Mm -hmm essentially faith-based so, organizations sorry faith sorry <laughs> there's so much jargon yeah fbo's is faith-based organization um and they are so so you have the range from um the the faith-based organizations that are essentially acting in a secular manner they look and talk and exist as any non-faith-based organization would um, and of course, you know, we'd make the argument that they have been, they have navigated, navigated themselves, sometimes forced into that position. So in order to be a legitimate, recognized humanitarian actor, overall, the humanitarian system has these kind of secular standards, and you must meet them. Um, and, you know, if you don't, you are outside the humanitarian system as not and not recognized as legitimate in the same way. So if you want to be part of that system, you change or you become or you even start your existence as a certain type of faith based organization that knows how to walk the secular talk, um, even if keeping some elements of your mission and values, etc., connected to faith. Um, and I think that's a, a lot of the big faith-based organizations nowadays. Um, of course, then there are the faith-based organizations that are um, much more connected to the daily um, practice of religion, as I've said again. And the reasons why you know humanitarian system wouldn't see them as legitimate is because you start getting into the realms where they might be doing more religious work than humanitarian work. And there are boundaries placed around that due to issues such as proselytization. So if part of your humanitarian assistance is very much based on um, the condition that people receive the assistance by taking part in religious services or, you know, com particularly converting to a religion, then that is an an absolute red flag um, and is the ultimate barrier that loses legitimacy for an organization's place in the humanitarian system. Because then absolutely the assistance is partial. You are requiring an exchange of belief of something so deep and important and essential to someone's life for the for humanitarian assistance, be that food, shelter, water, etc. Um, and you know, I think that's a correct red flag like I, I don't argue against that um but the thing is if we have two ends of the spectrum and that's the furthest end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is basically you know maybe faith-based in name only and otherwise no differentiation there's a lot in between therefore um, and I think that what happens with faith-based organizations is they just get put in a, a box at one end of the spectrum or the other um and um you know that causes many issues about identity and how to navigate um yeah how to navigate your faith-based identity as a faith-based organization um 
And that could be a whole other topic. I'm actually not going to get into that because I could spiral into like an hour of conversation at that point as well. <laughs> questions uh, around this one is um so for, just for the listeners uh, because we we kind of tickled you know their their uh how do you say um curiosity so your, your phd has been published can people read that um or has it has yeah. been divided into you know blogs or articles um, um both all everything okay. so there is a book it's called um secular religious dynamics in humanitarian response um, published by Routledge, um, and um, there are also several journal articles mm -hmm. that you can find under my name, um, and several blog posts. Um, so, if you want to learn specifically about the research from the Philippines, um, that is in the book and some of those journal articles. But um, as I said, like any of my publications in the past ten years, mm -hmm. are all broadly talking about this topic of you know religious engagement in humanitarian and development work um and sometimes in different countries um not just the philippines um but um yeah basically just look me up there's a lot of publications that yeah, you yeah. can read probably too much <laughs> yeah no so we we will ensure that um you know be enabled the, the listeners to when they check out the podcast notes that they can find at least a book through the link so we'll make sure of that. Um, then what I would like to do is is bring us to JLI, um, because it's 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 clear, you know, your the work that you did in the Philippines, uh, the book that you wrote, um, is very much in line with what JLI is about. So if I have then two questions, you know, where we go to towards the JLI and your experience there. The first one is, uh, do you still remember the first time that you heard about JLI? And you know, tell us uh, something about that, and then we go to what do you like about the work of JLI? Um, so I found out about JLI when I was in the first year of my PhD, or maybe even very, very early on, when I was just searching for information, publications, resources. So um, maybe the first way that many people find JLI, um, they are interested in this topic and they want to know more about the research in this area. Um, so I was, in, and then I got in contact with JLI. So at that time, um, Jean Duff, who is the founder of JLI, co-founder with others, um, and was you know the first staff member, the first person working on it, the first coordinator, bringing all of the initial existence of JLI together. Um, she uh, was particularly you know interested in my research, and um, you know I'm so grateful to Jean. She's become a mentor in my life, um, and uh, was very very supportive of um, everything that. I was working on um, and she put me in touch with the learning hubs at those times there were some um, some of the first learning hubs so there was the resilience learning hub which was particularly interested in like resilience in humanitarian um, contexts um, and um, Alistair Aja and um, Elena Fidian Kashmir were uh, the co-chairs um, and they were very helpful as well as as well as many of the hub members who were um, 
put me in touch with many of my contacts in the Philippines. You know, people that I'm still in contact with now came from me being part of the Resilience Hub and talking to other Resilience Hub members um, um, in probably, two, yeah, 2013, 2014, mm -hmm. around that time. Um, so I have been every type i've had every type of involvement with jli as a hub member you know as just someone looking at the website to a hub member to a consultant so the next thing that happened was i became a consultant and started um working on some papers some evidence briefs for jli when mm. we were building up to the world humanitarian summit in 2015 and then into 2016 um and then and then in 2018 became a, a the first director of research or the mm -hmm. only director of research and uh you know, I think the third staff member by that point so there was Jean and Stacy and myself and it was just us for a while <laughs> for several years too so it's really amazing to see how many people now are um working with JLI um and how JLI has grown uh yeah it's exciting what do you like about the work of JLI? Um, well, I mean, obviously, I the topic is completely aligned with my interests. So mm -hmm. um, there was pretty much a perfect match. Um, Jean spotted that from the beginning. You know, she just had had an eye for finding the right people. And, you know, I think she put she identified me as the right person to put in the right place, basically. Um, and she could do that. So, uh, you know. Yeah, that was all thanks to her. Um, and, um, you know, over the years, what I've liked is this ability to bridge worlds between that research and practice. Um, and very much now, I don't, I don't really feel like I have a foot in, I'm not dedicated to one side or the other. You know, I'm mm. not an academic anymore, but I'm not a practitioner either. And we really do do a good job in JLI, I think, of being able to speak to both. Like we work with um, um, practitioners all the time. and We're able to bring research and evidence to them and make it useful and meaningful in the ways that we advise um, religious engagement should happen in, in development projects. So um, I you know, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that basically we've been able to do a lot of research in a way that, you know, I think if I was an academic, I probably wouldn't have done as much research. Like no. we just have had many interesting and different opportunities um, that don't come along um, um, unless you identify yourself in such a niche way that as we have done at JLI, as the research and evidence people on religion and development. Um, but also the final thing is just I do love working at JLI because we have a very good organizational culture, which is different than everything that I've said before. But it is part of what makes it, um, you know, even when we're working in a small organization and we're kind of got all the trials that come with that, um, we have created a very empathetic and kind environment where people listen to each other and um everything's quite horizontal in a way that I haven't experienced much in other places so I think that's been that's what's kept me here um mm. over these years in particular when there are tough moments etc it's that 
I've been listened to. We listen to each other um, and we're kind to each other. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I'm not that long with JLI, but I can attest to that. I mean, it's really a great group of people to work with. And um, you're absolutely right. And, and to go back to your comment in terms, you know, you did you did you where you said I'm not an academic and I'm not a practitioner. Well, I, I, I think in this world, it is really important to have what I call linchpins, you know, translators, because, you know, the, so many worlds are different. Well, you need more connection between what is happening. And, and that is um, more important than ever, I think, because there's so much misunderstanding because people don't understand each other's world, each other's context, each other's language. Uh, so I, I think JLI and specifically the work that you do um, is, is really important. And, and uh, so th thank you for that. Um, uh, Olivia, you know, I what I hope to that these special episodes of the Walk to Listen podcast will do is also, you know, tell a wider, you know, range of people about the great work that, you know, JLI has been doing and, and including, you know, you're part of that. Um, and then people always say, you know, what is your elevator speech? You know, how can you quickly, because people don't have a lot of um, time and, and patience. So how, how would you, what will you say if you have a minute, you know, or you go from the 22nd floor, uh, to the ground floor and you have to explain about JLI what will you say who am I pitching to um a potential a person that would be interested to um that potentially would be interested in collaborating um because they work uh in this space of of humanitarian assistance but also has resources that will help um to expand the work of of mm -hmm. JLI mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say that JLI is the evidence and research network on religion and development um, that's not replicated anywhere else. Um, we have a incredibly large member network um, that has been able to bridge between academia and practice in the way that, again, no other organization can and has in religion and development field. Um, and we have this niche expertise about how to do better religious engagement in humanitarian and development work. And if that is something that you have a question about, then we can bring the evidence-based advice to answer all your questions. I, I would like to ask you, because you've mentioned this a lot, and it's also referred to in previous episodes is the hubs the different hubs so you know yeah if you have it to explain this what it means and what the hub is doing but what is a hub in terms of working on gender-based violence or on any other topic that you mentioned um so we are the joint learning initiative mm -hmm. so joint learning is about learning exchange um, and the way that that is implemented is through learning hubs. Um, they are a sort of community of practice, uh, and they are targeted at this mix of researchers, practitioners, and policymakers who are interested in religion and any given topic. Um, so we have, yes, religion and gender-based violence, religion and refugees and forced migration, uh, religion and anti-trafficking you know there's a you can see on our website a whole list um 
the learning hub structure was not something we invented. There was another joint learning initiative before JLI existed, um, and it was on children and HIV AIDS. Um, and so we borrowed that model and we've since, you know, adapted it in many ways to make it our own. Um, but the real value to that model that makes us, you know, different than, say, a research consultancy um, means that we've created this large, large network over the years of people around the world in many different countries and on many different topics who have identified themselves as um, interested in and knowledgeable about that particular uh, subject area. And that's quite, uh, that's unusual because of the fact that these are, some of these subject areas are not topics that get talked about very often, or there aren't other places where people have that ability to engage on, well, what is the latest research around religion and gender-based violence programming, for example, and how do I put that into practice uh, in my uh, in my job as a development practitioner, for example. Um, and the learning hubs, you know, are evolve over time and we've had many different iterations of them and sometimes they retire after a few years and sometimes they get going again. And so we, you know, we follow where the energy is. We're not um, you know, forcing their existence upon the world. Um, and we're led by where there is uh, where there's passion from certain people that comes forward. And then we can create a platform through the learning hub for people's passions to collaborate with other people who have similar passions. Um, and I think that they've been very fruitful over the years. And um, I think, it, yeah, as I said, it, it's what sets JLI apart. Oh, uh, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Um, so, you know, when I was listening to you, you know, then, then the hubs exist of different types of folks. Um, so international NGOs and their staff are also part of those hubs in certain occasions, right? Um, how is that going? And especially I'm asking this question, going back to your PhD study where, you know, um, yeah, when international NGOs are in the field, they bring in this new type of, you know, uh, vocabulary and things are, yeah, how, how does that go then? How, how do they, you know, those different people in the hubs, how do they uh, talk with each other and how, what is the role then of JLI in facilitating that? Yeah, right. So we we have to play a facilitator role. That is absolutely the role for JLI. Um, and there are many different uh, agendas potentially at play, right? People joining a group can want different outcomes from it. Um, I mean, what we've so one of the things that we've been particularly interested in over the years is um uh, localization um, and the collaboration with more local faith actors, um, lifting up the value and role of local faith actors, um, and you know also helping local faith actors improve their uh, uh, research and evidence and knowledge work too, which is oftentimes just non-existent and up till this point. Um, so we have noted, broadly speaking that um, 
there are many local faith actors that remain unconnected to uh, humanitarian and development systems and funding and partners. Um, and that they, and there are many reasons for that, you know, that they are just unaware, but there's a lot that happens in parallel, um, which leads to replication, duplication, you know, wasted resources. Um, and that there are also biases amongst like the, the INGOs, the international NGOs, um, against local faith actors. They're viewed as lacking capacity, which is a problem with any local organization. You know, this view that they uh, do not have the capacity to receive grants from Western donors. Um, but there are also particular biases related to religion. Um, and those are, you know, as I was saying before, like these biases that that, that um, local faith actors will not be neutral. They will not be partial, um, impartial. Instead, they will be partial. They will only give assistance to their co-religionists, i.e. the people in their congregations with them, for example. Mm. Um, and of course, that's not the case <laughs> most commonly. Um, it can sometimes be the case, though, as well. Um, so you have to know and understand the context and do your analysis of who are the local faith actors how do they work who are they working with how have they worked historically and you also have to do the work to help those local faith actors to say okay this organization looks like a really good organization but they probably do need some capacity building in terms of their finances in order for them to be able to receive a grant with all the compliance requirements that come with big grants nowadays or even smallish grants um so there are these divides like very very stark divides between the local and the international um i mean a lot of the international faith-based organizations have been working with local faith-based organizations for many years so, you know, they're actually not the worst offenders. It's others that are having more problems working with local actors. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, we've had to make a conscious effort. And I think this is what Sadia talked about in her interview a bit more to, you know, um, um, change the makeup of our learning hubs, move away from um, uh, northern western dominance of people involved um, and more consciously engage local faith actors to bridge some of these divides and um, be more inclusive. I would like to, to jump to you know what is I, I think rightly so considered to be the flagship um of of jli and that is the state the evidence uh, you know the publication around it um you were you know you were very much involved you were one of the key uh, authors there um yeah can you tell a bit about um why is that important you know that publication um and how is it also then related to the hubs Right. So um, the state of the evidence report was an idea I had probably in about 2019 in its very, very original mm -hmm. format. Um, we didn't publish the first state of the evidence until 2022. So you see that it took some time to develop. 
Um, and it was an idea that I had, um, it, you know, in conversation with Jean and Stacy at the, you know, in those earlier days of JLI. Um, we had been producing scoping studies through the learning hubs. So the learning hubs produced for each of their topic areas a long report that was a really in-depth uh, literature review with some interviews, case studies, etc., to demonstrate the scope of our knowledge of our evidence in. Uh, that particular topic so far. Um, but as director of research, I often found myself summarizing these scoping studies and um, creating my own mini reading lists for people. You know, people would come to me and say, we are wanting to maybe start a new project in well, let's take GBV again, because we've been using that as the example so far. Gender-based um, violence, yeah. Yeah, gender-based violence. We've been, we want to start a project in religion and gender-based violence. Can you send me um, all the latest research in this area? And then I'd spend half a day putting it together. Um, mm. And it was happening over and over again. And it was great in many ways because it demonstrated that JLI was recognized as like a go-to resource person um, or group and, and group um, that knew the latest evidence in these fields and who to connect other people to. Um, but it was also becoming increasingly frustrating and also laborious, like we were putting in a lot of work. Um, and it became clear we needed just like our flagship report that summarized, that did that work. And so could be the go-to when anyone comes to us and says, what is the latest evidence in religion and gender-based violence or religion and climate or religion and you know any other area that's important to development practitioners? We could say, oh, we have it already summarized for you in this report. Mm -hmm. um, and even just that very basic thing of what is religion and development? Like that was what we needed. We needed a quick go-to go place where we could say, read this piece and that will answer all these questions for you. And then come to us after you've read that piece and we can go into more depth, basically. Um, so the idea was to have these chapters that would be, you know, 2,000 words max. We didn't want long, you know, a journal article is 6,000 to 10,000 words. We didn't want them to be that long. We wanted them to be short and easily, more easily accessible to people. Um, while also it had to be 2,000 words because it needed to have enough content to really demonstrate the depth and you know interesting points of the research it couldn't just be a few bullet points you know it couldn't be a one page um, on some of these topics so that was where we kind of found a middle ground and so we've created this report um and the first report in 2022 was very much linked to learning hub topics as well so we um, collaborated with researchers that have been involved in the learning hubs over the various years um, and invited them to write chapters. Um, and the chapters um, are, um, they're not aligned with every single learning hub, but the mm. broad basis of the chapters covers, you know, every topic that we've covered in the learning hubs before. So um, we created the report as a demonstration of the wealth, the depth and breadth of evidence in religion and development. We linked it 
you know, we gained inspiration from the scoping studies from previous learning hubs. We linked it in terms of the content of the chapters to the learning hubs and invited researchers from the learning hubs to um, to contribute. Um, and we also did other pieces connected to it. You know, each chapter is available as a standalone. Um, there are videos connected to the different chapters. Um, there are blog posts connected to the different chapters. We still have some to publish. It's not completed. Um, but again, we wanted to make sure that we had other communication formats, basically, other ways that people could um, understand the content and quickly engage with the content because you know I really get that even even if it is just 2,000 words in a chapter that's still sometimes a bit of a feels like a barrier to to people's accessibility um so rather than saying oh we're just going to make a report that's just um a lot of you know blog post length um excerpts I think we need all these different formats. So you do need the slightly longer piece, the 2000 word chapter that has all the different references, you know, it's citing the different material, demonstrating this is where the research comes from, et cetera. But then you have a blog post as well to summarize it even more. You have a video for someone who likes, you know, more visual or hearing the information and that's easier for them to take that information in. So it's um, been... I think more than anything, actually, what we've learned from it is about the kind of research communications and how we do that side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been an interesting process for us and something that we need to take forward. And um, of course, the next um, state of the evidence, it's meant to be every two years. So we're hoping to publish something, um, well, by the end of this year um, or early next year, I guess. I've asked this question also to your colleague Sadia, uh, but if you, if I ask you, you know, where do you think the, um, the state of the evidence report uh, glows, you know, so what are the, you know, what are you proud of that you were able to achieve, you know, as a, as a team, and where is there, you know, a possibility to grow, to improve it? What would you mention? Um, well, I mean, I'm proud of I am proud of how it's been used. It's doing exactly what we intended it to do. Um, you know, there's a conference being planned at the moment where they have taken the state of the evidence report as the basis of how they've gone about planning the content and the different panels for the conference because it was the go-to place place that already summarized all the material they needed. Um, there are, have been many reports from different people of them saying, of, of sharing the state of the evidence report with colleagues when they're trying to introduce religion and development as an important issue to other colleagues that have no idea about it. You know, those are really validating stories and demonstrate that we have done something that's needed and it's being used. Um, but the question is where to go from here. And we have had feedback, and I know I think Sadia talked about it as well. Like we um, we want to include a broader representation of research from um, more languages and more countries. You know, religion and development evidence is still very much dominate, dominated by Western Christian English perspectives. Um, and so we want to broaden that. 
Um, we also want to, again, make sure that we do better research communications next time we reach a broader group of people um, and that we have more, uh, well, translation of the document um, and translation of the different materials produced from the document um, and maybe better ways to engage people in how they can use the document, like workshops that we can create and then implement with different groups that need to use that kind of evidence to think through their strategy or their programming. So there's almost, yeah, there's so many, there's an endless number of ways that I want to change it and we can do different things with it. And there's also the question just of the content. You know, we could just do an update every two years, but I don't think that's that interesting. And it seems that generally people want to, us to do a different report every two years. So the question is, what topics and chapters do we want to engage with in the next state of the evidence report? Um, again, how do they link to the learning hubs? Who's going to be involved, et cetera? Um, and that's still, those are conversations we're having. Mm. Yes, it sounds really exciting. And, and hopefully we'll be able to, to see that uh, next uh, publication materialize and and uh you know expand uh, further in terms of people who will be able to read or listen um, or watch it right there are different ways of uh, how that report is being distributed um yeah. olivia I have, I have a couple of lighter uh, questions for you um i i personally think they're fun and and uh, but you know they they indirectly will help the listeners to understand more about you as well as, as JLI. Um, a song that, I, uh, sorry, a, a question that I always ask is if I ask you to come up with a song or a piece of music that best represents uh, from your perspective what JLI is about, which song or piece of music would it be and why? Yes, um, I had a little time to think about this beforehand because I don't know if anything would have come completely off the top of my head yeah. um but i went back to a song that i used to listen to so much as a child um which is by cat stevens or yusuf islam um called peace train um mm. and you know my parents played cat stevens all the time when i was mm -hmm. growing up that was just part of the sounds of my childhood yeah um obviously peace train is a very ambitious song i'm not saying that jli is claiming that it is the responsible organization for solving peace in the world. Um, but what, how I, you know, why I think it's interesting um, for JLI to think about is I think that, well, firstly, it's a very passionate song. It's someone calling for, you know, this deeply held um, value of peace that's, you know, in our hearts as children, as adults, something that we aspire to, um, and I do think that all the people that work in JLI, you know, we're working in JLI because we have a, we're holding our values as part of our professional life and we are aspirational in what we're trying to do. And we're a small and scrappy organization still aspirationally trying to um, push the curve and push for something that sometimes other people you know, don't believe we really should be pushing for or think we're pushing too far or too much. Um, and, you know, I'm proud of us as an organization for keeping doing that. Um, and of course, you know, just the, the 
the the values that we were are working for um, are connected to that idea of uh, of um, of peace in our world. But another thing that I liked is the idea of a train and mm -hmm. the invitation to everyone jump on the peace train, um, because I think of JLI in that um, invitational way. Like we are inviting people to join with us on this journey um, and join with us as part of a, you know, this aspirational kind of collaborative um, space that we that we're trying to create mm -hmm. um so yeah that i mean that's it really but it wasn't yeah. an easy one to come up with but <laughs> that's what i got well, to that people consider you know my music related question always is the most difficult one so mm -hmm. i think you did a great job and and, and it's, a, it's a great song um you know we, we have a lot of conversations right at the moment and and maybe it can be divided in two things is one is uh, you know, how can we make ensure that, you know, JLI can continue to, uh, to do the work that it needs to do. And so, you know, a lot of those questions are related with, you know, funding and, and, uh, you know, business model. How do you, how do you make our organization more sustainable? The other uh, question is also then, you know, what should be the focus for the future of JLI? Um, so what is your opinion about it? The, the focus? Yeah, um, I feel like this is a question that we come back to again and again and again. And now having been involved with JLI for 10 plus years, um, we have reflected on that many times over. Um, and, you know, sometimes we've even asked the question of, is there a future? Like, should there be a future? Um you know, initially JLI was intended as maybe a two to three year project. It wasn't going to be long term. And we do keep coming back to the fact that we do think there is a place for JLI and there isn't a, a, a an equivalent of JLI and we have value in that. Um, and I think the future of JLI is that we can push um others around us in the religion and development space particularly to think more about their regionalization and localization and we can model that ourselves and I think that we've been doing that um and I think that there's um the continue I mean kind of unfortunately the continued role for us to keep stating sometimes what now almost feels like the obvious mm. um because there are still many people in the humanitarian and development world that are um, need help about how they do their religious engagement. Um, and even if we have done it for many years and advised many different groups, there's still so much, it's still really a nascent area in so many ways um, that's growing. Um, and can learn and has so much to learn about how do we do better religious engagement and development. So um, as kind of like an advisory function based on our knowledge of the evidence and our, our own research, um, that function, I think, will continue to exist for a long time. Um, I mean, the sustainability of a small organization, however, um, remains an issue um, and a challenge. And 
you know, the things that we get paid to do in terms of advice and research aren't necessarily the things that are supporting sometimes what we want to do, um, such as the regionalization of the learning hubs, where we put a lot more time and effort and money into working with local researchers on topics that they want to research rather than topics that are defined by other people. Um, and so, yeah, we have a little bit of sometimes that mis mismatch of, you know, where where we would, um, we think there's a need um, and where we're able to fund. Um, and I think that JLI is a small organization and will remain a small organization. Like we're not going to be, 100 200 a thousand people like we're not we haven't got that scope um and there's not that level of interest in religious engagement um so any small nonprofit is always going to be like slightly scrabbling at the margins in some ways but i do not have the answer to the sustainability question um and I've been thinking about it for JLI for many years now as well. So, yeah, it's a hard one. Yeah, these conversations always go fast. Um, I, I do want to ask you, what do you hope that this podcast episode might do uh, for uh, JLI? Yeah, um, well, thank you very much for doing the series on JLI. Um, I think it is um, great to to bring JLI to the attention of your audience, so just a wider audience that we haven't maybe reached yet. Um, and it's good for us as well just to have these summaries, another format for people to listen to, um, to find out more about JLI. You know, we have been, um, we've probably not done enough in terms of video, audio, et cetera, um, in our communication of the research and evidence that we, that we have. Um, so anything that is expanding our reach in that way is, is good. And also a demonstration and like an experiment for us about mm. what we could do, um, more, um, in this area. Um, so, um, I think that, yeah, you've, talk to a really good group of people maybe you'll talk to more as well and you know just keep demonstrating the, the like the breadth of people involved in mm. JLI um and that will help I think further dig into the reasons why you know maybe some of the, the newer people that have that are really involved in JLI right now but mm. have only been involved for maybe you know two years I'd be really interested to know more about what JLI means to them you know right now what it's doing for them and um, their work and, and um, yeah, their pra you know practice or research or whatever they're working on. A question that I sh that we did not address that I should have asked. Um. Well, that is a great great question to ask. Perfect interview. <laughs> Final question. Um. We didn't really talk, I mean, I talked in an abstract way, but I didn't really talk exactly about this idea of strategic religious engagement mm -hmm. that has been big for JLI recently and I've been particularly working on. So could talk about that a bit more. But, I mean, Catherine talked about that a bit, I guess. Um, let, let us let us piggyback a little bit on, on that religious engagement. Um, so... 
has our has our thinking on good practice around uh, religious engagements evolved over the years? Um, and if so, how? Yes, our JLI's thinking, my thinking, JLI's thinking, many people's thinking, or the people who are involved in this area, um, our thinking on religious engagement and how to do it well has definitely evolved. Um, and that's because we have more um, evidence. It really is. Like we've just learned more and more mm -hmm. over the years. I mean, some things have not changed. Some things, the people researching and writing about this subject in the 90s, the early 2000s, um, were making the same points. And, you know, they are the same points that tell us um, religion is being ignored. Why is religion being ignored? This is important. This is a gap. Um, or religion, when it's not ignored, is being instrumentalized and it's being instrumentalized um, to co-opt its assets and uses um, for development purposes. Um, and some of these things are still very much true, but I do think we've also changed and we are adding nuance and more experience to all of those points. I have, in fact, written a whole journal article about this that is open access that we can also link for anyone that wants to read it. Um, and, you know, what we're talking about now is just is is different. So like that, you know, in the early 2000s, there were a lot of publications on this is what makes a faith based organization and a typology of an FBO. You know, people were writing about that, whereas now what we want to talk about is well, not really FBOs at all. We want to talk about who are all the different types of religious actors that might be involved. How are they um, involved in different ways? Let's make sure we include, for example, women from religious minorities more. And how do we do that? Um, let's make sure we work with young people of faith more. And how do we do that? Which, which, faith-based organizations are on the peripheries of engagement and why are they on the peripheries and what dynamic has meant that one faith-based organization has become the preferred organization for all development work in an area whereas two or three others get ignored all the time um you know we're talking now more and more about um the ways that it's not just a picture of development organizations instrumentalizing religious actors, but the ways that there's been this dance between religious and development actors and instrumentalization of the each other over the years. Like people have played games with each other in many ways um, and taken advantage of each other at different times and in different ways as well. Um, so I just think that we're, we're coming at, we're less naive we're a bit smarter. We're not just taking it as an argument to make the case for religion. And in fact, I think that's um, really an outdated argument. Like if someone approaches me and says, oh, we're having a conference and the conference question is, why does religion matter? To me, I'm not interested because that is something that we've gone beyond at this point. We're not asking that question of why does religion matter? We're asking the question of, the complexity of religion in every place, the positives, the negatives, and everything in between. I'm not trying to prove religion. Like I'm not trying, I don't want to have to be this burden of proof of trying to say, 
religion exists. Of course it does. Of course it's influencing everything that you're doing in your work in some way or another. Um, and I think for years we did have this burden of proof. There was like this expectation that we needed to just pr bring another piece of evidence to the table that would prove religion matters. Um, and um, I think finally we're able to, well, first of all, just have so much research and evidence now that that's not as much of a question, but also have more confidence to say, that's really not an interesting question. If you think that that is the basic point that needs to be made, then you haven't understood how much else we have to talk about because we have a lot more to talk about. Um, and it's going to surprise you in all the ways um, that the religious dynamics of the context you're working in and how it relates to your programs are incredibly complex. Um, so I you know, this has become what's known as uh, more and more as this idea of strategic religious engagement. Um, and I think what we've been able to do in JLI over the years is identify what's not strategic. Um, and some, you know, sometimes we've been part of it. We've been part of what's not strategic and we've been frustrated by it and disappointed by it. And so part of strategic religious engagement is a call to ourselves to learn from those experiences and help others learn um, with it, that learning too. Um, and again, we can also link this. We actually have a, a brief on strategic religious engagement that identifies six different points of unstrategic religious engagement and basically everything that's not working right now. Um, and and a lot of our work across the JLI is now trying to rectify those issues. Thank you so much, uh, Olivia. I mean, I, I I think this this more or less an hour of, of conversation um, did much more than uh, tickle the you know. Um, curiosity of the of the listeners. I'm 100 sure they will check out the website and the publications. I really encourage them also to reach out to us if they would like to collaborate or would like to know more. I would like to thank you for um, you know for today, but also for everything you have done. Uh, you know for JLI and um, for who you are. So it's it's uh, yeah, there's been great for for me being able to to work you more work with you more closely uh last couple of months so um yeah great thank you so much um thank really you very much it. thank you bye As we wrap up today's insightful conversation, I hope it has sparked your curiosity and interest in the vital work of the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Local Communities, JLI. If today's episode has resonated with you, whether it's the desire to collaborate, contribute or even offer financial support to further JLI's impactful mission, we'd love to hear more from you. The JLI's journey is one of collaboration, learning 
and making a tangible difference in communities through the unique intersection of faith and development. Your involvement could be a significant part of this transformative process. Whether you're looking to offer your expertise, resources, or are seeking to understand more about how you can contribute, your initiative is invaluable. Please feel free to reach out to us. Send an email to maurice at jlifc.com or contact us through our platform. We welcome your thoughts, questions and proposals for collaboration. I'll personally ensure that your interest is directed to the right people at JLI, helping you connect with a network of individuals and organizations dedicated to creating a better world through faith-informed development. Thank you for joining us on Walk, Talk, Listen, where each conversation brings us closer to understanding and action. Your engagement doesn't just end with listening, it begins here. Let's continue to be part of this remarkable journey together. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.